Turn to Luke 24. Luke chapter 24. We're going to read uh, verses 13 through 35. And we're going to talk about a resurrection that is past, present, and future. While you're turning there, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, I... This day is so special. It is the most important day in the universe. The day that you conquered death, that you conquered our death, and you brought in your kingdom to reign and rule here on this earth. And Lord, we, I, I pray for a Easter celebration perpetually and continuously. Not just a reminder today, but a, a continued fire in our souls from this day forward. Lord, that we would be all the more planted, all the more secure in your love that cannot be moved, that's conquered everything, even the greatest enemy of all, that is death. Lord, would you please bring us into that today? Show us again. Um, Show us fresh and new, these truths. Help us to apply these things to us today. And I pray that these scriptures would just become all the more powerful to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, let's pick it up in verse 13. This is Luke chapter 24, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discuss, discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since this happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just like the women had said, but him they did not see. And he, Jesus, said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things things concerning himself. This is verse 28 now. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he was going to go further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. So he went in to stay with them. 
When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Uh, This passage is all about the power of realization. It's a really interesting passage. This is the story of two of Jesus' followers leaving Jerusalem after the incredible events of the week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, It's reasonable to assume that these two men were probably there in the beginning of the week, possibly shouting in the crowd, Hosanna, like we just sang. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is is the kingdom of David that's coming. They had probably watched with a mixture of excitement, maybe a little trepidation and fear as Jesus drove people out of the temple confronted the corruption that was there in the temple. You know, probably a mixture of, is he really doing this? And yes, this is so good. They probably listened and marveled at the brilliant ways that Jesus was able to answer all of the tough questions that week by the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Questions that were designed to give them a reason to kill Jesus. But at the end of that week, they probably started hearing other rumors that Jesus was in some sort of secret trial. Shocked that he was turned in by one of his own disciples, by one of his own followers that maybe was even willing to testify against him. They must have thought, you know, as the minor key started to tune in, they thought this is not going the way we thought it was going to go. And then can you imagine the horror they felt when they wake up one morning and they see Jesus in chains bloodied and bruised from a night of beating the night before, standing before Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor, they thought, what happened? What went wrong? Things were going so well. And then to hear their own people cry things out like, crucify him. Give us Barabbas instead. Or how about this one? For Jewish people, we have no king but Caesar. Can you imagine what they were hearing? Or may his blood be upon us and our own children. What is going on? What is going on? And then the unimaginable happens. Perhaps they couldn't bear to go see it for themselves, but they knew that this man who had rode into Jerusalem triumphantly in the beginning of this week was now dying on a cross. It was actually happening. And now they're walking out of the city, utterly lost, completely confused, because their world has just been turned upside down. That's where we find them. They don't know how to make sense of it. Now, here's what's fun to think about when it comes to this story, because we get a a really unique vantage point. We know that in the midst of their despair and their confusion, the most redemptive, universe-altering, spiritual, and cosmic event has occurred. They just don't realize it. And therefore, they don't have access to it. They're living in kind of a false reality, 
right? Jesus has risen from the dead, but they can't access that reality because they don't get it. They don't know it. They don't understand it. They haven't heard about it. It's happened, but for them, in a sense, it hasn't. There's a barrier in their understanding. And so because of that, they're, they're thinking of things in a certain way. They're processing life in a certain way. They're concluding things about their circumstances in a certain kind of a way until they actually have an encounter with the risen Jesus and he opens their mind to see all the seemingly loose ends of the past come together. Only then would their eyes be opened. And notice um, that he doesn't just uh, uh, pop up on the road and, and they know it's him. Hey, it's me, it's Jesus. You'd think that that would be the short, the short way to get to what they need, the, the epiphany that they're looking for. But instead, the text makes it clear that not just that they didn't recognize him, but their eyes were kept closed. That God was closing their eyes to the reality of the risen Lord. And there can only be, I think, one reason for this. Jesus knew that they had to see some other important things before they could truly see him. Before they could really get it, they had to get some other things first. He had to lead them on a journey, a theological journey. Their understanding of something, of some things needed to be corrected. They needed to correct their incorrect worldview. So look what Jesus does. He corrects their view of the past, which alters their perspective in the present. And... Like, like the domino effect, it gives them a certain unshakable hope for the future. That's what the resurrection does. Or to propose their problem in another way, and maybe this can apply for us too. The reason they were hopeless about the future was because of their perception of the present, and their present confusion was built on fundamental misunderstandings of the past. It all runs together. What you believe matters. How you think about history matters. So Jesus isn't just tweaking a few theological errors in their heads. No, in light of the resurrection, he's rebuilding them from the ground up. He's washing over the past in light of the resurrection. It's world-altering, and it changes everything. Now again, remember this weird thing to think about. In a sense, it's already happened. It's already there. But the more they realize it, the more they can access it. The more they can wrap their hearts and minds around it, the more access to the power that they have. So today we're going to learn a few things. We're going to learn that the resurrection fulfills the past. Secondly, we're going to learn that the resurrection brings the reign of God into the present. And third, we're going to, we're going to learn that the resurrection gives an unshakable hope for our future. First, the resurrection fulfills the past. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So, in other words, Jesus is saying, the reason you are not interpreting the present correctly is because you've been interpreting the events, themes, narratives of the past incorrectly. If you only saw the past differently, Jesus would say, you would be able to see the present for what it really is. Everything would change. So what does Jesus do? He leads them through this incredible Bible study, through the entire Old Testament, beginning with Moses, 
uh, which would have been Genesis, and going through all the prophets, basically the entire Old Testament, and he shows them how everything in it, not just certain parts, but the, the, the text is clear. He showed them how all things are about him. It's all been about him this entire time. Let me read it to you. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That means all scriptures about him. Now imagine how mind-blowing this would have been for, for them. These biblical themes, concepts, promises, prophecies, they no doubt are familiar to them. They're not new. They would have known all about them. They would have thought that they mastered them, right? Or they were looking, they were trying to master them through a certain theological grid or a way of, of understanding. But before their very eyes, as Jesus shows how it's all about him, how the scriptures must have just popped for them. Uh, I, was, I was looking earlier about, you know, in the 80s, there were these pictures that had all these abstract dots and lines. Do you remember this? And you could, if you could cross your eyes in a certain way, what was one image that was old would all of a sudden become 3D and whoosh, pop out at you? They're called magic eyes, right? Okay, uh, Vero and Craig just solved that mystery for me today. I could not, Google did not know what that was or what that was called. I was like, what is that called? And they happened to be talking about it at the coffee bar this morning. So, yay for the coffee bar. Um, so, it was, that's a, that must have been what was going on for these guys. Um, Old stories would have popped into technicolor for them for the very first time. The scriptures would have had kind of a two-dimensional kind of feel, both old and familiar on the one hand, but also being made brand new on the other hand. I think the best way to describe this is when you see a great film that has a great twist in the end. Um, I'm thinking of the movie um, Fight Club. Okay. I don't want to spoil it for you. But uh, Brad Pitt's character doesn't exist, actually. I just did spoil it for you. Um, uh, Brad Pitt's character, um, a guy by the name of Tyler, is just a projection of the subconscious of the narrator. And so the whole time, Brad Pitt's character is interacting with people, and then at the end, there's this incredible twist. Now, here's the thing. With a movie like that, you go back and watch it a second time. You can't... You cannot, you can't not watch it without the twist ending in mind. It changes the entire movie. Where before you thought Brad Pitt was talking to somebody, now you know that it's it's this narrator played played by Ed, Edward. I can't remember his Edward Norton. Um, it's his actual subconscious interacting with these characters, and now you know. Or um, okay, The Sixth Sense. Were you guys already thinking of that? The sixth sense, you know, Bruce Willis is actually dead. I just spoiled it for you. There you go. He's actually dead. And you realize, you go back and watch it again, where you thought that he was talking to people. Now you realize he wasn't talking to anybody. He was dead the entire time. So, you know, it changes the whole thing. Um, the whole film that you thought you understood morphs and takes a different shape right before your eyes. It's still the same, but it's different at the same time. Now, the entire you guys need to understand, the entire New Testament was written like this. The entire New Testament is written by people who are looking back on the Old Testament having witnessed the twist ending. That's the perspective that they're writing from. 
And they can't now unknow that. They can't unsee it differently. Once they've seen it, they can't go back and think about the Old Testament scriptures, stories, prophecies, the way they used to think of them. It doesn't work. They just can't. The word that the NT writers, the, the, the New Testament writers use to describe this kind of phenomenon is the word fulfill. They would say Jesus fulfills all of Israel's history. He's the fulfillment of it all. And that's what they meant. In other words, Jesus' life his career, his death, his resurrection washes back over the past so perfectly that it fulfills every story, every promise, every theme, every place and person in the redemptive story. It's wrapped up all in Jesus. And how that must have just come together for them before their eyes, it just must have been mind-blowing for them. That's why the early church described Jesus as the key to the scriptures. He is their key exegetical tool to unlock the scriptures. In other words, the apocalyptic coming, uh, apocalypse means apocalyptic coming of the Messiah, casts new light on all the old stories. The lamp of Jesus reveals corners in the Old Testament that were dark and musty before, but now he shines light on them all. And we go, oh, for example, can you imagine uh, the, the ancient Hebrews that thought that this Davidic king in the first half of Isaiah and this mysterious suffering servant in the second half of Isaiah were two separate people. And then in Jesus, they realized, oh, it's the same one. It's the same God. He's the king that suffers to reign. I knew those stories before. They're old. They're familiar to me. But now, oh my goodness, now. That's why the new covenant stands over the old and determines how we're to interpret it. In one sense, the new law isn't really new. It's familiar. Matthew himself in Matthew 13 says, these things have been hidden since the foundation of the world. They've always been there. They're not new in a sense. But at the same time, the revelation of these things in Jesus is new. They are, both, they are both new and old truths. Um, St. Augustine said it the best. He said, the New Testament is latent in the old and the old is patent in the new. Or somebody that wanted to unpack that better put it like this. They said, the new is in the old contained, but the old is in the new retained. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. The new is in the old enfolded, but the old is in the new unfolded. Or Hugh of, of, of St. Victor said, all of divine scripture is one book, and that book is Christ. It's all about him. Now, without understanding this, if you don't understand this, when you go to read the New Testament, you might think that the New Testament author, authors are playing fast and loose with some Old Testament scriptures. When they, when they interpret the Old Testament, you think, how did they get that from that? Right? But in reality, they're seeing it from another, they're seeing it from a new vantage point. And all of history works that way. History is best written from the vantage point of the future. When we look back and we go, okay, well, now we know what that means. That, that's how it will be with COVID 19. That's what we're already seeing with COVID 19. Remember a year ago? We didn't really quite know. And there was all of these warnings that we now know aren't really warnings. And then, then there's all this stuff that we weren't afraid of that now we're, we have better understanding as time goes on. And we look back at COVID-19 and we kind of go, oh, okay, well, now we know. It's not so mysterious. It's been revealed the more we discover. 
The redemptive history works the same way. Um, Patrick Schreiner puts it this way. He says, the people in the Old Testament, that would be Moses, Abraham, David, all of them. And he says, and places, mountains, rivers, temples, deserts, and time, old and new, all incorporate together under the banner of Jesus. It all comes together. John Calvin, uh, actually writing a preface for someone else's commentary, he wrote it this way. He said, he, that's Jesus, is Isaac the beloved son of the father who was offered as a sacrifice, but nevertheless did not succumb to the power of death. He, Jesus, is the good and compassionate brother Joseph, who in his glory was not ashamed to acknowledge his brothers, however lowly and abject their condition. He, Jesus, is the great sacrificer and bishop Melchizedek, who offered an eternal sacrifice once for all. Jesus is the sovereign lawgiver Moses, who, is, who has written the law on the tablets of our hearts by his spirit. He is the faithful captain and guide, Joshua, who led us to the promised land. He is the victorious and noble King David, bringing by his hand all rebellious power into subjection. Jesus is the magnificent and triumphant King Solomon, governing his kingdom in peace and prosperity. He is the strong and powerful Samson, who by his death has overwhelmed all of his enemies. This is what we should, in short, seek in the whole of Scripture, Calvin says, truly to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in Him are offered to us by Him, by God the Father. If one were to sift thoroughly the law and the prophets, he would not find a single word which would not draw and bring us to Jesus. Therefore, rightly does St. Paul say in another passage that he would, he would know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's all about him. Now, when they understood this, when the two disciples on the road to Emmaus got this incredible Bible study and saw how it was all leading to Jesus, um, and they understood that all the loose ends and the sufferings of the past week were actually not unfortunate, but actually, as Jesus said, did you notice he used the word necessary? Jesus said, don't you know that it was necessary? In other words, it had to happen? It must have changed the way they viewed the present situation. It gave their present circumstances divine context and purpose. It, the same circumstances. But all of a sudden, they were infused with meaning. They had a whole other meaning. Nothing had changed, and yet, everything had changed. Why? Because if it was prophesied, even necessary, as Jesus said, that the cross was not a defeat, but a decisive victory... And if Jesus' sufferings were actually a victory and necessary, then that means his followers' present sufferings were also not losses, but victories, and listen, you guys, absolutely necessary. And here's some, something that we need to understand that I think we've lost touch, generally speaking, we've lost touch of, and that is for the early church. Please listen carefully. This is how the resurrection hits your life today. For the early church, the themes of the cross and resurrection were not simply theological themes and disciplines that they had to master in some abstract way. Listen, the themes of the cross and resurrection, they were patterns, they were patterns for the way in which the Christians lived. They were the way in which to fulfill their mission. 
That was the model by which to live. Uh, Listen to um, English scholar N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, early Christians understood their vocation as Jesus' followers to include as a central load-bearing element their own suffering, misunderstanding, and likely death. In other words, here's what Wright's trying to say. Because Jesus led the way and did what they could not do, and then bid them to come follow him, Mark chapter 8. They understood that they, that they were expected to be empowered by the Spirit to live the same kind of life. The cross was not just the event that brought redemption, though it is, it really is. It's also the template by which the followers of Christ are to bring redemption here to the present. There's some huge implications to that. Or let me, let me take a stab at it another way. In order to bring resurrection power, the resurrection power of God that Jesus made available to, to us, in order to make it bear witness on this planet or bear on this planet in the here and now, in the present tense, the early Christians understood that it was necessary and appropriate to suffer and to say no to yourself, to die to yourself. To the degree which every Christ follower is willing to take up their cross, to that degree, resurrection will come into their life. So in a sense, we've got our hand on the throttle of of the power. We can come and celebrate this once a year. But we've got the power to release it onto this world. How? Through programs and books and all of those types of things? Primarily through saying no to yourself. Through dying to yourself. If it, if, it was, if it was necessary for Jesus to suffer and die to bring resurrection, then it is necessary, it has to be, for his followers also to suffer and bring the resurrection that Jesus provided. Look at, well, let me read it to you. Here's Jesus. Maybe, these, some, maybe some scriptures that are familiar to you, maybe in light of what I just shared, they'll pop at you in some new ways. Listen to this. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone wants to come where I'm going, if anyone wants to follow me, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Resurrection. For what does it profit a man to to gain the whole world but to forfeit his soul? In other words, if you want to save your soul, in other words, if if you pray for health and life and peace and contentment and to be comfortable in your own skin and to to reach your full potential, those are all... all Uh, contemporary ways of describing the theological term of resurrection. To be who you're meant to be. To live the way you were meant to live. If you've prayed that prayer, if you want resurrection, then you've got to die to get it. So many of us are not experiencing resurrection power because we refuse to go through the cross. We want to skip that bit. And go right to the resurrection bit. When, when were the, by the way, when, were, when did these two disciples recognize that it was Jesus? A very decisive and telling moment when Jesus broke the bread. What we, what we do, we, we symbolize, that's communion. 
broke the bread. And what are we doing at communion? We are ingesting the message of the cross. We're making it who we are. And that was significant for them to do. In fact, it was so significant that notice that was the part at the end of our passage in verse 35, I think, that was the part that they felt most compelled to tell the other disciples. They went back to Jerusalem and what did they tell the other disciples? He was revealed when he broke the bread. That's the part that stuck out to them. And most scholars think that you can hyperlink this to Acts chapter 2 when it tells the template of the church where they expounded the word of God through the apostles' teaching. They taught the past. They broke bread in the present and they gave them power for the future. Here's the point. It's not just that Jesus died so that we don't have to die. I've heard it taught that way. That's not, that's not exactly true. There's more to that. Now, certainly, Jesus was punished on the cross so that we don't have to incur the wrath of God. That's certainly true. He died for our sins so that we don't have to die before the judgment, before the judgment of God. That is absolutely certainly true. But he also died so that we are now empowered by God to die also to ourselves and thereby bring in the power of the resurrection into your life today and into this world, into society, into our families. He died so that now we can. And this is what it means to follow him. Okay, let me see if some scriptures will pop out at you now. This, this, is, this is 1 Thessalonians. He said, he, this is Paul talking to, Tim, uh, to the 1 Thessalonians about Timothy. We sent Timothy so that he could strengthen you and bring comfort to your faith so that you wouldn't be pulled off course by your sufferings. You yourself know, don't you, that this is what we are bound to face. Suffering. We're bound to face. For when we were with you, we told you ahead of time that we would undergo suffering. And that's, as it turns out, that's exactly what's happened. Uh, Listen to Paul say it to the Philippians. Here it gets even more powerful. In fact, he says, because of the Messiah... Paul says, I've suffered the loss of everything because of Jesus. I didn't gain the American dream. I didn't get all the stuff I want. I actually suffered the loss of everything. And now I calculate it as trash so that my prophet may be the Messiah and, and that I may be discovered in him, not having my own covenant status defined by Torah, but the status which comes through the Messiah's faithfulness, the covenant status from God which is given by faith. Here we go. This means knowing him, knowing the power of his resurrection, and knowing the partnership of his suffering. He goes on. It means, listen, sharing the form and pattern template of his death so that somehow I may arrive at the final resurrection from the dead. This is how we're to live. It's a pattern that we're to appropriate within ourselves. I got one more. This makes it abundantly clear. This is from 2 Corinthians. It says, we have this treasure. You guys know this one? We have this treasure in earthen pots so that the extraordinary quality of the power may belong to God, not to us. We are under all kinds of pressure, but we're not crushed completely. We are at a loss, but not, but not at our wit's end. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are cast down, but not destroyed. Here we go. We always present tense, carry the death of Jesus about in our body so that the life of Jesus, resurrection, may be revealed in our body. 
Although we are still alive, you see, we are always being given over to death because of Jesus. Not because of the Romans, not because of life on earth is hard, not because we live in a really corrupt and dark society. Nope, because of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our mortal humanity. So this is how it is. Death is at work in us so that life will be at work in you. Does it pop in a new way? We lose track of this in our society because our society is all about comfort and we've almost completely spiritualized those things to mean, well, that doesn't mean here and now. It means the resurrection means later. So we celebrate the, uh, Easter thinking someday we'll go to heaven and then we'll get it. Well, yes, but there's more than that. We bring it now. We bring it here. Jesus has risen indeed. The reason we don't access it like these disciples is because we don't realize it yet. We don't get it, but it's happened. And our eyes need to be opened for us to bring it into our own lives personally and into those around us. The cross was not just an isolated event that brought us salvation. It is that, but it's much more. Jesus lived, suffered, and died and offered that as an ongoing template by which Christians are to bring resurrection to this earth. That gives us a mission for Seattle. That gives us a mission that is very um, alive for our neighbors. It makes us very active. Okay, thirdly, the only reason we can, how, you know, how do we endure this kind of suffering? I mean, the Bible describes saying no to yourself as death because it is. If anybody's tried to, I mean, really say no to yourself, the stuff that, especially the things that you, you depend on, the things that you think you can't live without, to say no to yourself and, and suffer in that way, it does feel like death. Absolutely. Because it is, in a certain sense. How do we endure that? Well, the only reason we can endure the suffering of the present is not only because it brings the resurrection of power of the kingdom of God to the here and now to a degree, although it does, but because the resurrection promises a certain future. The resurrection is both now and not yet, according to the Bible. We're living between the now and the not yet, and that's the rub that we feel. It is here on the cross. Jesus did not say, to be continued. He said, it is done. When he wrote in Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, Jesus said, all authority over heaven and earth has been given to me. In other words, I'm in charge now. In John chapter 12, he said to the disciples before he went to the cross, he said, now is when the ruler of this world will be kicked out. Not sometime later, but now is when the ruler of this world will be kept. So it's here. It is here. And yet, it will be culminated in the future. How did Jesus endure the suffering of the now? Well, he, again, he's our model. Look, uh, Hebrews chapter 12 says, looking to Jesus. How do we get through suffering? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, that's in the future, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If you can accept the resurrection is a real historical 
event, a bare naked event that actually happened in the past, that's happening now, and that will culminate fully in the future, then well, what is it? It means you're not just dust in the wind. You, you, you don't just mean nothing. Everything has meaning right now. That's what that means. Everything you're going through has meaning and purpose. Think of it this way. What is death? What is death? Death is the loss of something that seems irretrievable, right? That's what we think when someone dies. We think, oh man, they lost their life. They'll never get it back. It's over, right? That's what we think about when we think about someone dying. The loss of their life, it's gone. And in that way, we've been slowly dying since the day we've been born, We're losing things that are seemingly irretrievable. Throughout life, we continue to lose things. Youth, right? Health, energy. We lose our kids when they, when they leave the house and go to school or when they get married. Life, someone once said, life is a, is a succession of goodbyes. Or we would call it death. What seems irretri- irretrievable, opportunities. It seems like we go around full and it's slipping through our fingers as we keep going. The human experience in this world is marked by a slow death, a series of losses, but the resurrection boldly reverses all of that. I'm thinking um, of those who have dreamt of being married since they were, since they were young enough to dream And now they're old enough to realize that it's probably not going to happen. And they grieve that loss because it seems irretrievable. I'll never have what I dreamed to have. The resurrection says, yes, you will. Yes, you will. You, the resurrection will culminate in the future and you will meet, um, you, will, you will be in the arms of the one that you were met, always made to be in the arms of. He is the song in every song. He's the embrace in every set of arms. He is what we're truly, truly, truly longing for. Or those that are struggling in horrible marriages that have just given up hope that I'm, I'm just never going to experience what that happy couple is experiencing. Oh, yes, you will. Yes, you will. See, the resurrection um, is not just, it, it's not just the, the consolation of loss. It's actually the restoration of everything you've lost. Somehow, the Bible says in heaven, all the should have beens will be. He will retro it back. The redemption will wash backwards. The resurrection will culminate and all the should have beens will be. We have a sure future. It's certain it can't be taken away. And that means... Strength and courage to live now. Okay, some housekeeping items. None of this works unless the, unless the death and resurrection of Jesus are actual, is an actual event in history. And the reason I say this is because around this time of year, Time Magazine and all sorts of other documentaries arrive about the Gospels and Jesus and the historical Jesus and all of these things. And they've got, a, they've got a very old, they make it sound like it's the latest scholarship. It's very old scholarship that basically says the Gospels are written as propaganda material um, that are myths, made up stories to get across a spiritual uh, principle. And that's really what matters. Whether they historically actually happened or not, 
doesn't matter. The writers were writing them to steer this new movement of Christianity toward principles that they really wanted Christianity to look like, like forgiveness, hope, those types of things. So we're going to make up some fictional stories because that's how the ancient world communicated. We'll make up some fictional stories to get across these spiritual principles. And that's really what the Gospels are. So whether Jesus really actually did raise from the dead doesn't matter. We still have, it's all about hope. And the Gospel writers would say that is, that's silly. <laughs> that's silly. For one thing, that's not the way the Gospels read, is it? I mean, just our passage today, they don't read like a myth made up by somebody to embody some spiritual truth. They read like eyewitness testimony. If you, keep, if you, were, if I, well, if you were to keep reading this chapter, let me, let me just indulge me, let me read it to you. Look, at, it says, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought he was a spirit. They thought he was a myth. They thought he wasn't real. So what happens? This is in the very same chapter. And he said to them, why are you so troubled and why, do you, and why do you doubt in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it's myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones like I have, right? And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy of marveling, in other words, is this too good to be true? Look what he says to them. He goes, have you, do you guys have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it right before them. Jesus himself is saying, I am not a symbol of some spiritual truth. He's saying, I am real. I am alive. And there's all sorts of incidental uh, facts in the narrative that don't push the narrative forward. They're there because it just happened that way. For example, why in our story is one disciple, Cleopas, named, and the other one's not? Why, why, that, why, why is that? Well, because in ancient biographies, they cited people as a footnote. In other words, Cleopas, you can go find him and ask, this is where the story came from. He's my source. This reads like eyewitness testimony. Secondly, though, and I think more philosophically, more importantly, um, if Jesus didn't actually do this, then we're not admired. It's, it's pitiful. We don't think of people who live their lives based on a myth and a lie, we don't think, oh, I just admire their faith. No, we think, oh, that's so sad. Right? Paul picked up on that when he said, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we of all people are most to be pitied. It's pitiful to believe something. We want to know why? Because here's what Christianity says. Christianity says no matter what you're going through in this life, you will be embraced by love for eternity and forever. Now, unless that's true, it doesn't work. Unless you really believe that, unless it's true, unless you really are going to go to heaven and all the should-have-beens will be, it's not, well, well, it makes people better people. It's good for our evolutionary system. It makes people, okay, when you die, no one, and that's all there is, and there's eternal darkness and eternal silence, no one's going to care how many people you helped across the street, how much money you gave. When the, when the earth gets a little too close to the sun and all of humanity ceases to exist, no one's going to care about the, the justice that you stood up for. And the, the good things that you did, it, it does not matter unless that's not all there is. Unless there is a God, a judge, then it matters. Then everything matters. You see what I'm saying? That we try to separate the objective from the subjective, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Please do not hear today, I've got to go out there and die to myself more. It's true, but you'll never get there by thinking like that. The only way you're going to go out there and die to yourself more 
is when you're captured by and you see Jesus Christ dying for you. That's the only way it's going to work, you guys. Please don't think this is a moral, now get out there and conquer the world. Look, the only way, I do want us to go out there and bring the resurrection power to the world, but the only way you're going to do that without falling to pride on one hand and condemnation on the other, proud that you died to yourself today, or I suck at this, I'm never going to get it, I'm never going to get it. How do we stay in the middle? When we realize, when we see, truly see Jesus doing it for us. He died for me. Now I want to die for him. It won't make it less painful, but it'll be a sacrifice of love. It'll, it'll, it'll be the real fuel in your tank that'll get it done for the right reasons. Does that make sense? Celebrate him, love him, worship him, and ingest the message into your soul. And from that fuel, you will start going, man, I really don't want to, but he did it for me, and so I will. And that will be the way that you live. Finally, last thing, I promise. <laughs> my, my church knows that, thinks that this is incredibly short, so welcome. Um, in the Bible, anytime anyone really gets the resurrection message, anytime, Fact check me, find it out. Any time someone sees the risen Lord or, or realizes Jesus is alive, every time they take it to someone else. Every time. In fact, we see that in our passage today. These disciples, after a long day of travel, they realize it's Jesus, they get back up and they go back to Jerusalem to tell other people. You can't help it. You can't help it. When we really get it, you won't be able to help it. You'll be on mission. Why? Because you'll run into people that are still living in a reality, a false reality, that death still reigns. We live in a city that believes this is all there is. Therefore, what kind of hope can there be? We live in a city filled with people walking around dismayed. I'll just do the best I can right now because this is all I got. Right? We get to go and say, no, no, he's risen. He's risen. There is more. So much more than this. There's hope. There's certainty. Certainty in the future that will affect your present. That will wash back over your past and fulfill it all. I don't say, now go out there and do that. I say, first, get it for yourself. Ingest it for yourself. Enjoy it. Love it for yourself. And then you won't be able to help it. When you run into people at work that say, my wife says she's going to leave. What, what hope is there? You can say, oh, there's so much more. I'm sorry for your loss. Yeah, the pain is real, but there's so much more. You can give hope that you've received. To, this morning, we're going to play one more song and we're going to ingest the gospel. We're going to take communion, right? Is that, is that a thing? Yeah, we're doing that. We're going to take, I don't know how it's going to work. Craig's going to lead us through it, but... Think of it that way. What are you doing? It's not just a symbol. You are saying, I am going to appropriate this as my way of life. If you want health, peace, contentment, joy, all of those things, you've got to pass through the cross to bring in the resurrection. Do you understand? Uh, look, there's, there's death because we don't, there's death because of self. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? A lot of us are suffering because we say yes to self so much. It makes us suffer. There's consequences. But then there's the kind of death that is because we've died to self. And that's the kind of death that brings life. And when Christians take of communion, we're reminding ourselves we're re-upping. 
<laughs> okay, I remember now the kind of life I'm supposed to live. He bid me to come follow him. Oh, the wondrous cross bids me come and die to find that I may truly live. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand up and Craig will come up and lead us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you, that you went first to empower us to do what we could never do on our own on our best day. But you did it instead of us to empower us to do it also. Would you bring your Holy Spirit now to raise us from the dead, so to speak, again. Lord, may our eyes be opened in a way that they haven't been before. And may we not just wait anxiously for the, re- for the culmination of the resurrection, but may we participate in bringing it here, now, and in all the here and nows after, every second, every moment of every day. We love you. Thank you for, because we see that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.